Good evening, everyone, and thank you for joining us for this special 5 by 15 event with Kate Humble. And We're so delighted to have these fantastic speakers with us this evening to reflect on home and what it means to create happy and healthy spaces for ourselves and for our families, which is also the theme of their wonderful new books. Kate Humble is a writer, smallholder, campaigner, and one of the UK presenters. The author of numerous highly acclaimed books, Kate has inspired many readers with her positive and purposeful approach to life, whether it's reconnecting with nature or changing our lifestyles. Now in her new book, Where the Hearth Is, Stories of Home, she turns her attention to life indoors. Helen Rebanks joins us this evening to talk about her debut book, The Farmer's Wife, which explores the work she and her family do as a tight-knit team, making their farm globally important with their farming innovations. They advise internationally and host events regularly at the farm to share their expertise and encourage others. Both of these wonderful books are on sale this evening from Newham Bookshop our independent bookselling partner, and all the details about how to order will be posted in the chat as usual. Kate and Helen will be in conversation this evening with the brilliant host, literary critic and journalist Alex Clark. Remember, towards the end of the session for your questions, so please do post any of the questions you have for Helen and Kate in the Zoom Q&A box at any time during the event, and we'll get to as many as we can. Without any further ado, Alex, over to you. Jack, thank you so much. I'm just delighted to be here uh, with all the audience. I'm going to say, first of all, um, just send us questions whenever something occurs to you. We will. We don't have to wait for the formality of a Q&A at the end. We will get to them throughout um, as they occur to you. And I'm sure that my wonderful guests will answer anything. It's it's a kind of miracle that they're here. I know from our brief sort of saying hello just before that, but Kate, you've been wrangling with vets or rather lack of vets. And Helen, yeah. you've been getting vast vats of macaroni cheese on the table for your your very, very hungry family. So it's like the books make it very obvious. There's never a quiet minute, is there, for either of you? I think no, I'm, not really Helen. I think Helen takes the award though. I mean, I just have, you know, dogs and pigs and a husband and some badly behaved hens to deal with. Helen has all that, cows, plus four children, um, plus, right. you know, a worldwide reputation to, 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 to deal with. And she looks beautiful. I don't know how she does it. Um, that's really kind of you, Kate, to say, honestly. Uh, it's, it's, it was a quick dash to get organized um, this evening, but um, no, team effort, like uh, Jack's brilliant introduction before on the farm, everybody pitches in with something. So um, it's not all down on me to sort everything out all the time. We're all pulling together um, and it's busy and it's fun and it's, yeah, yeah, it's, it's good. It's, it, and you never know what's coming the next day. We were just talking about you just you know the weather can hit you anything can hit you something breaking something carving or picking or sheeping or lambing that's the word <laughs> I'm, I'm not the farmer I don't know if anybody can tell out there however I do have a field and I've really got to exercise great self-control not to ask you both what I should do myself I might indulge myself a bit but listen I wanted to start really by asking you both just to give a little sort of explanation each of you in turn uh, 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 what your books are and I wanted to say I suppose it's a confession really that we've seen just before as, as everybody was joining beautiful beautiful but they have things like you know lovely dogs relaxing in front of fires wonderful bouquets of wildflowers and for the brief minute before I dived into these these books I did think are they going to be that kind of rather wholesome rather how to arrange fruit artfully to look gorgeous. I mean, what I believe is called cottage core, but this sort of very bucolic vision of the countryside life. I hadn't anticipated in different ways and in both your books, how how honest you would be and how open about the difficulty in both your lives. And Kate, in your story, all the other stories that you tell, would you just, just tell us a little bit about the book? 
Yeah, so, well, I'm going to start, actually, if I may, um, to talk a little bit about the cover that um, that Alex um, very beautifully described, which I can take no credit for. It was actually designed by one of the people that I interviewed for this book, uh, a wonderful woman called Melanie Lewis. And the, the, the kind of genesis of this book, if you like, was... Um, that I've had this long held uh, dream of building a house, which is because I'm not even capable of putting up a shelf straight. But anyway, well, you know, I'll deal with the kind of practicalities of that when it when it comes to it. But one of the things that I uh, realised is that uh, a house doesn't automatically become a home. I lived in a house, uh, the last house I lived before I moved to Wales, um, we bought as a wreck and did up and I thought it was going to be perfect. And it was never home. It never felt like home. So this threw up this question of actually, what is what is the essence? What is the thing that makes you walk into somewhere? And it may not be great, even be a building. It might be a it might be a caravan. It might be a camper van. Um, but that might feel like home in the way that a castle doesn't. Um, so what is it? What is that that unquantifiable, unknowable something that makes you feel like you belong? In my rather common, badly brought up way, uh, where you feel you can eat peanut butter out of a jar with your finger and no one cares. That for me is home. Um, Helen's going to be horrified because I'm now going to be encouraging her children to do exactly that. Um, but so this really, the book was a search for um, As you rightly said, Alex, I did at first think, am I going to be kind of trying to find out what makes a home and then, and then passing on that information to other people? But what I realised as I started interviewing all these incredibly generous, spirited people who invite which is quite a thing, you know, it's, it is such a place of privacy and of, and, and of, and it's so personal, your home, that to invite a stranger in is, I now realise a very, very big deal indeed. And, um, and their stories really told the need me to kind of, you know, pseudo psychoanalyze what makes a home. I think each of these people in their own ways with their own unique perspectives gave me an extraordinarily rich overview of that essential glory that we all, that we all seek. And, and that we can actually, as you point out, transport from place to place. And several of the people uh, either do out of necessity or, or out of choice. And yeah. home is something you can take with you. Um, Helen, coming on to your... What struck me was it could almost be a sort of story of false starts in a way, that you're pursuing something, you and your husband, James, you meet when you're really quite young uh, and you're mm -hmm. together you know, very firmly ever since, even through difficulties and when you might meet each other, but you have dreams. They're not that easy to realise. And it's a, a rocky road that you describe. Yes, very much so, Alex. It's it's the just the truth of, of real life, of trying to get to a farm and trying to realize a dream. Um, that's essentially what my story our story is and my cover and go back a, a slight step was is my kitchen table so that is literally looking out of my window every day and all the different things that um a brilliant designed the front cover and did the illustrations throughout the book and you know we we discussed what elements were on and out, my youngest son tom wanted more dinosaurs um just to to sort of give a, an example of how my day goes. it's essentially one day through the book mm. and and then dips back into memoir pieces with recipes woven through because the stories are all around food my life is very much around food and feeding everybody and that centers from the kitchen which is you know cooker and the table the kitchen table so everything comes from there and that table came with us from 
our very first flat when we um, moved away from both family farms and we lived in Oxford and we bought this table. So I've described a scene where we go and pick this up from a furniture store and back of the the VW Golf with bale of twine tied up to hold the car, you know, the boots from blowing up. And um, we brought this into a basement flat, this table, and then it was, for me, that was home initially to to make this flat into a home by having a table. And we went on various different sort of paths of doing up properties and trying to just to hold things together, together, really like working hard to kind of realise, like you say, the dream of holding on to this old bell farm in the late. Um, and through writing the, the recipes, the stories, I've been able to explore the choices I've made along the way. And what looks like a very traditional life and very um, sort of old fashioned life and, and I reckon with that in the modern world, really, um, through the stories and the scenes of the book. And I'm just, I, I was quite amused to read a little review earlier on today. And and this this person's written, this is no Argus saga. Helen has passionate views on wider issues about food and farming, foot and mouth devastation, the cheap food that we have. And then some vegans may change their mind about food after reading <laughs> the messages about sustainability but ultimately they've put that it's a story about courage and love and I think that sums it up really well um it's always hard to talk about your own work I find that really hard so I was... <laughs> it's um, your first book isn't it and of course your husband James yeah. you know has written uh you know quite extensively about his life as a farmer and to great acclaim and I wonder how it how it felt to you to become a writer. I know he encouraged you enormously throughout, didn't he? He he's believed in me as much as I've believed in him over the years, and uh, I was ready to do a creative project of my own. Um, a lot of this started through lockdown, where we all had longer days. We seem to our days seem so much shorter now. <laughs> Yeah. Well, it's interesting. And I'm not being a farmer myself, but living in the middle of, of farms, surrounded by farms, one of the things I found mm. about lockdown was, yes, there was a kind of lovely peace to an extent, even though this tremendous backdrop of anxiety and knowing that uncertainty, knowing that people were going through terrible things. But it also struck me that daily life, in a way, hadn't changed in my immediate environment because animals still had to be fed and fields had to be watered and ploughed and sown and actually tractors going up and down. Same. And, and that was a continuation, wasn't it? You both must have found that. Um, Kate, I mean, it was obviously with your TV work, it was very, very, very different, but your, your home life must have been similar in some ways. Well, oddly, um, the home life, you're absolutely right, home life much exactly the same and I think that was the great privilege that I think all three of us have we live in the countryside mm -hmm. and um and and particularly if you know so so you didn't I don't think we probably felt the constraints and the confinement that did because even if you can just walk outside and look at a space even if you can't go very far that is something I suspect we all feel is the kind of uh the, the the kind of root of happiness that that idea of I mean I I know when I go to a city I can see out of a window is another is other buildings and concrete it it I kind of feel myself shriveling up if I can look at something green um I feel kind of alive again so I think that was one of the great uh privileges I felt of having lockdown in the countryside um, and yes having animals they did still need feedings um you know all there were a lot of aspects of life that really didn't change at all but where I uh, lucked out particularly um, is that I married very well um, I married an award-winning director and cameraman he wasn't when I married him for his skills but they they came you train him up is that what you're saying 
<laughs> he did it himself, but I took full advantage. Um, and um, and so actually, you know, lockdown was a time when lots of people were watching telly and no one could make it. And um, so we were asked, you know, this incredibly privileged position of, uh, you know, I can talk and be on the telly he can make telly and we have a farm which people you know that that sort of thing that as you were saying this sort of slightly I mean it, it can come across as bucolic and idealistic um Helen knows only always the case but nonetheless it's there's a lot of natural drama and jeopardy and um and 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 things that make you want to watch you know that a farm is a story it is a story that tells itself day after day and so actually I've never been with tv work as I was during lockdown um Helen that's true isn't it that story that keeps telling itself day after day there's oh, yes. interesting, interesting material in your book, interesting descriptions of the time before you had back to that life, back to the life that you both really wanted, which was also to do with being free of the constrictions of other people, not working for other people, not having the law laid down to you about how you spent each and every day. When you were sort of city Helen, and when you were, I think, art Helen, you know, interest in in making and doing and and creative projects it it seems almost as if you felt there were these different sides to yourself that you were struggling to reconcile and it took you a kind of a while to 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 find that way to do so is that is that accurate I think that's accurate that's accurate to say Alex I I grew up wanting to make things and create things and interested in books and music and art and I didn't really value the farm life for what it was then in my eyes, um, for what it is now, the full circle and moved away from it and then came back to it with probably as much passion or as more, you know, for where we live and what we do as James has now. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it, yeah, this, this different parts of me, part of it was writing this book with that creativity urge in me to get to do something where I was kind of working through ideas and to create a narrative out of your life um, is really challenging and interesting and um, it it makes you go back to your life and think about it deeply um, and wonder why bits have influenced you um, and I'm really really pleased that I've got to the stage I can hold it in my hands but I'm almost missing that time of writing it the the flow where you could come up to the desk a cup of tea or a coffee down and you'd be working away on the scene and then that sort of you lose yourself in that work and get that flow um and the tea and coffee would go cold by the if I was having a good writing session I I sort of miss that at the moment um that's why yeah, you have and that's how, well, that's how they, they hook you in. I mean, you know, you, Kate, you've, you've written several books. And of course, you know, writing a book, publishing a book is collaborative, you know, in the, in the wider sense. But it's nothing like the day-to-day collaboration that you need if you're working in television. Or indeed, far, far more solitary, at least at the moment, of actually getting the words on the page, isn't it? Do you... Do you find that absolutely essential to your life? Complete. I mean, it is, it is, it's a very, and it's it's really interesting, Helen, that you should say that you're sort of missing it because there's this odd thing. It's one of those things um, that is oddly addictive because as Helen described, you know, when you're having a good writing day, there's nothing better and the time just goes and you you disappear into your into your into the story that you're trying to tell. When you're having a bad writing day, you know, you sit there thinking, I don't know um why is anyone going to be interested in this why is anybody going to care it's all complete rubbish I don't know I should just be mucking out the pigs oh so yeah it, going, it swings oh it, it's it absolutely I mean, swings wildly it I does. can completely it totally swings wildly I get that 
then I would just go and do a heap of washing or I'd just go and procrastinate, do absolutely anything else, but sit at the desk and work on it. Um, But then I would have a conversation and then that would release sort of like what was in my mind about what I was trying to achieve. Or we'd read, we read bits out to each other when we're working on things. Um, you know, really useful when you can hear your own words back. Yeah, yeah. I, I read, so I do a lot in longhand um, and I read everything, not to anybody. Well, even the dogs actually got bored of me in the, in the end and, and <laughs> left the room. But, but I read everything out loud because it's the only way tell whether you've overused a word or you know whether a sentence actually flows properly and all that sort of thing so I do a lot of mm. marching up and down so basically although I didn't with this book with previous books I have actually left home and abandoned everybody and everything for like a month and and I basically go to somewhere where no one can get at me (laughs) and sort of grow a beard and you know if I wake up at two o'clock in the morning with sudden inspiration I can get up without worrying I'm disturbing Ludo and I can just go and and sometimes I literally don't sleep for a week and just write and 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 go complete um and when I was writing a year of living simply that's what happened and somebody phoned me and said you it it was something about you know something that had to happen on a Friday and I was like yeah but it's only Tuesday and they went no it is Friday now and it's supposed to be it can't and I'd lost I don't know where those four days lost them but one thing I, I really wanted to say Helen about your book which I confess and I confessed to you earlier that I haven't read all of it yet but it's it is so much more it's so much more complex than just your life because you throw really really interesting themes that I think you know as a as a woman it's sort of yes the farming side of it is is fascinating and illuminating but actually it really throws into into sharp focus the role of women and I love if I'm I'm going to just read the quote that you use at the beginning because it really made me think you know it really made me think um and it's a quote from um from Middlemarch George Eliot's Middlemarch um and it is but the effect of her being on those around her was inclusive for the growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts and that things are not so ill with you and me as they might have been, is half owing to the number who lived faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs. And I thought, my goodness, you know, there are so many women that I've met through the farming community around me that are the absolute linchpin of their families and of the businesses and of everything else. And it is sort of expected um, and they are unsung and they don't or medals. But I think you just highlight it through the stories of your your grandmother and your mother, you know, the role of women in 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 society and 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 how crucial you are as homemakers, as we are as homemakers. It delighted you you said that, Kate, and, and thank you very much. I also was so it was so lovely to see that George Eliot quote and the bit I scribbled down particularly was unhistoric acts. That's what you do day by day. It's the accumulation of unhistoric acts that actually make our lives go on. But but you mentioned mother and her grandmother. And I was very moved, Helen, by how, how confidently, even though some of it must have been quite painful, you dealt with the difficulties that you had in your relationship with your mother, your mother had in her relationship with her. And you as a young woman growing up feeling, as, as we all do sometimes, patient with your mother for, you know, telling you what to do, not getting a nice dinner on the table, always seeing, seeming harassed and exhausted. And there's a whole backstory there, isn't there? I wonder, just tell us about writing the book. Gosh, yes, there is a whole backstory there. Um, Mum didn't come from a farming background. Um, she had some connection with it with her her aunts. She went to uh, look at look at, stay with them on the weekends and in the holidays. And 
the very first piece I wrote was making marmalade and um, it became, it wasn't a, a thing where I was trying to understand how to make marmalade as a little girl. It was, I was writing that and I was trying to understand their relationship between my mum and my grandma because mum moved into this farmhouse and it was very by grandma's rules and it was very traditional. We did that that time of year and that's, you know, this is how things run. And mum was not going to shy away from owning her own space in that kitchen and it almost became a competitive marmalade making kind of scenario by the end of a few years of her practicing to make it with grandma kind of keeping a watchful eye and yeah god it it wasn't easy for mum and I explored pieces of in the scenes memories that I had of finding out things along the way that's how I've helped the reader find out things in the scenes and the stories um, to discover that she didn't have a great time as a kid and she, her mum probably had undiagnosed depression. Um, my aunt died when my mum was six. Uh, she was 18 months old, meningitis, and it was so sad. And I, I think what I was wanting to do with this sharing these things was share that everybody has a, a family history and a past stories there that sometimes don't get talked about an awful lot. Your mum didn't, they say, didn't tell you this, did she? Not much. It's no, you found out that was a great deal later. Older, yes, mm. and. I knew I could piece together bits of the jigsaw puzzle in my mind from different, but it wasn't something we talked about very openly. Um, I think she was putting her past in the past and moving on and making a home and a family and a life. And in a busy farmhouse, there isn't much time to pause and reflect and stop and have longer conversations. It's very much you're doing the, um, but through writing it I was able to kind of work out where I was in all of this and understand why maybe my teenage years had been a bit more angst-ridden and why why we reacted in certain situations to each other like we had and then sort of as I had our first baby and then subsequently we've got four children now Mum has been there every single step of the way and helped me immensely. And I wanted to honour that with the book, really, and say, gosh, where would we be? Families around us or our communities or our village to raise children. And I'm so, so lucky that I've had that. We moved back to, to the farm and to carry on the farm. Um, but we've been surrounded by family the whole time to pitch in. And I frustrated with modern life that wants to celebrate an individual all the time when it really isn't an individual that does anything on their own. It's a, it's a team, whatever that looks like, whether it's a group of friends living together in a student house or it's looking after each other and cooking and caring, cleaning, all the what are termed as mundane things. I think it's the most yes. They yeah. are the most important. So I w all of that is kind of where I'm at with the book, that it, it evolved through. I didn't know that I was going to write the book that I wrote. At the um, I wanted to share stories and recipes of my life, and I had plenty of going on. But until I wrote, started writing, I didn't know what was there. Um, and it's become very deep and personal and, and very honest. One of my friends said, she, she said, because people keep really honest, Helen. It's really, <laughs> wow, wow, in interviews, wow, it's so honest. And my friend um, said to me, maybe people aren't used to women being so honest about how it feels. And not, I thought that hit the nail on the head. You know, it's not necessarily really those difficult parts. Kate, I, I wonder if I could ask you, I mean, that, the stories that you tell, and I, I'd love it if you'd sort of share. I mean, there are lots and lots of them, but but when, the ones that you you know really strike you as particularly um, symbolic or meant a lot to you. But it, it struck me that a lot of 
sense of home comes when they have begun to face up to some something that's niggling away at them, some kind of unresolved trauma or not knowing the path they want their life to take. I mean, I think that was probably true for you too, in terms of feeling that you had a home, you know, not that you've made beautiful, but still wasn't home. So many people you talk to suffer kind of reversals in their lives, and then they somehow realise what it is that's important, don't they? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think, um, you know, when I was thinking about who, who, who would be able to um, shed light on this, you know, on this sort of unknowable or this unanswerable question of of what makes a home. Um, I, you know, I I wrote lot. I write a lot of lists. Um, I have notebooks and uh, all. The- they're all the notes there's like about 10 notebooks from from this book um so there's a lot of a, a lot of list making um and one of the things that um struck me is uh what it's like what it's like to lose a home how how you feel if you lose a home and make a home after something that is so deeply traumatic um and it's never happened to me i've never lost a home in that way I've moved around you know I lived in I lived in in rented flats there were times when I could have been booted out because I got very very good at writing begging letters to my very understanding landlord so um uh he was kind enough to let me stay when he could very easily have hoiked me out because uh, I couldn't pay my 50 quid a week um but the closest I came to losing uh my home was when I was quite small when and um, our house caught fire. We had, um, Helen and I were comparing how cold our childhood homes were. No one had really, I mean, she's significantly younger than me, I I will say. So sorry, Helen, to kind of tie you with my 70s brush. But, um, you know, growing up in the 70s with very, very inefficient kind of old, um, uh, brick-lined storage heaters that just did not, do you remember those? I mean, they just... They, I mean, they're completely useless. So we'd wake up with sort of ice on the inside of the windows and things. And my mum, who's, you know, an incredibly robust Yorkshire woman, except that she's always cold. And so she'd indulged in, you know, a 1970s electric blanket, which one night caught fire. Luckily, she wasn't in the bed, but uh, we had to be bundled. We had to be <laughs> bundled up in the dark. I mean, I remember it as, of course, a huge adventure because... Like Helen said, we had this around us, these wonderful neighbours who didn't blink when we turned up on the doorstep at sort of whatever time it was, 11.30 at night in the pitch dark on a winter's, on a winter's evening with, you know, there was me and my brother and the cat <laughs> and mum uh, saying, oh, house is on fire. And they just, you know, made us made hot chocolate and and the fire brigade came and chucked the burning mattress out of the window and and the house was saved although it smelt of 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 wet soot which is a a smell now that takes me right back there every time but I did Mm. interview an extraordinary uh brother and sister in who had Mm. lived in their croft since they were well they've been born in the croft and um, what was interesting, I think, about their story and others who'd lo- lo- lost their homes too, ownership doesn't seem to matter. Um, and, you know, they were, t- or their parents were, so their parents moved into the Croft in 1922. Um, and, uh, you know, both children obviously had grown up there. Uh, Ruby had left Um, when she left school she went and trained to be a teacher so she actually left Shetland but Willie's whole life working alongside his parents at the Croft and then uh, when his father got ill Ruby came back and when they lost both their parents they carried on running the Croft you know running their sheep growing their vegetables keeping their garden and then uh, in February 1922 sorry 2022 so 100 years after they had moved in and and lived on that in that croft um willie woke up one morning there was a tremendous storm raging around uh uh, the islands shetland's fairly um well known for its uh dramatic 
Um, and he woke up to this, you know, thunder and lightning crashing around and the smell of, he, he described it as a sort of hot wire smell. And he had a, an old radiator plugged into his room and he thought maybe the fuse was going or something. So he put on his, his trousers and put his van, his truck keys into his pocket out of force of habit walked downstairs and the fuse box was in the porch of the croft and it was on fire and it was dripping bits of burning plastic onto I mean all of us have got things in our porches that probably we shouldn't old mops and <laughs> rubbish they were all merrily catching fire as well Ruby his sister was in her bedroom downstairs he knocked on the door saying you've got to get up you've got to get up you've got to get out um and um I mean, I won't tell the whole story. They did both get out, but it was lost. It was burnt entirely to the ground. And I met them only four months later. So it was a very, still a very, very raw, very emotional experience for them. Um, and it was really interesting to hear what they said about how home again and how their community had done everything they could to, to help them find a home and to help them um, pick up their, their lives again. But what was, what was so astonishing was, you know, these are very people, farmers tend to be, they have to be. And, and Ruby, you know, Willie, Willie was saying, I do really miss the, the books and the photographs, you know, those, those irreplaceable family memories really tangible family memories said yes but Willie if our parents had still been alive what would they be what would they be worrying about what would they care about all they would care about is that we survived that we've got each other we are each other's home and I thought that was so illuminating and moving and yeah. um and and you know everybody I spoke to who lost their homes, uh, a woman, a woman who lost her home through bankruptcy, through no fault of her own, um, two extraordinary refugee women, one from Ukraine, um, one life. You know she didn't just lose her home; she lost everything: her language, her community, her culture, her country, and um, and yet. There is something, as you said right at the beginning, Alex, something that people can carry with them to that is it is like the little seed. It's like people, you know, it's like those old stories of nomads carrying a, a handful of seeds with them um, or Jack in the Beanstalk uh, and planting that seed and recreating, rerouting. I suppose it is literally that. It is rerouting. rerouting. Yes. Yeah. There were, I must say, talk about. Ruby also says something, I think, in the book, like, well, thank God I'd had my hip done or I wouldn't have got out of the window. And I just thought, that's such a good joke. I know. And that's really true. Quite I mean, literally. true, but wow. I know. So so Willie's banging on her bedroom door saying you've got, you know, gets the front door open and is pulling out all this sort of burning detritus from the porch but the whole place is full of smoke so Ruby described opening her bedroom door to a wall of smoke and knew she couldn't get out and she's bless her heart she's in her pajamas with a jumper on over the top of them she has got her glasses and and Willie's going where is she where is she and he suddenly hears her and she's banging on the window her bedroom window um, and he goes round and helps her open it. And she says, I did manage to climb out, but only because I'd had my hip done. She said, if I hadn't had my hip done, well, I'd never have got out. Um, I mean, yeah. Incredible piece in the book. It's absolutely beautiful to think about them just holding together and just surviving that and, and thinking about their home and that view that he talks about. He misses the view, doesn't he? Of yeah. Looking out, but they've got each other and that's been something really close to my heart for you know our family just James and I even though we yearn to come back here wherever we've been in whatever house we've had and we've had several home has been us together just yeah. yes and, and that's so it really speaks to me and it 
same about your other couple in Shetland. Is it Willie and another Willie? Another <laughs> Willie yeah. and Jacqueline. And, yes. And that was lovely to read about them. It never crossed their minds to question why they felt so at home here because it just it just is. Yeah. Um, and it got me thinking after morning briefly, Kate, just thinking about what is my relationship with home? Um, I love it here when I can uh, open the door and walk across it. I'm so, so lucky to have this beautiful scenery around me. But it wouldn't mean a jot if I wasn't with James and the children. It just yeah. wouldn't, wouldn't matter if, uh, oh, it, it really was remarkable reading your stories. And it particularly with, with the refugees coming across was it this Syrian story you mentioned about the food and when you walked in and that they were um I was thinking about like bring their culture with them with the recipes that they've got and they you're in that home and and it smells of another place because they're cooking that that, those foods um so food has always been central to me and if you can put a meal on the table everybody feels Exactly. And, um, you know, it, it's interesting. One of the, um, okay. one of the things that we've, um, we've got questions just flooding in, so many questions. A lot of them are about food. I mean, and they are questions about when you both learned about how important it is that we put food at the heart of our lives. And yet we have pretty poor diets many of us and we they are perhaps too well they are too heavily reliant on processed food and food that we don't know the origin of and we've got loads of on that on that topic so I think we should probably spend a, a little bit of time on it I mean Helen you know your book is full of recipes and an awful lot of things that I'm going to be completely truthful I'm not like marmalade, like scones, all sorts of things that I, I wouldn't make from scratch, even though I like to. Um, but I'm not a great baker. Um, but you are very, very honest about, you know, there are addendums to the book saying, this is what you can do if you're in a hurry. This is what you can do if somebody's sick. This is what you can And it is baked beans or tin soup or whatever. And you're saying, yes, try to make a lovely fresh soup, but you don't always have to. Both of you talk to me and talk to us about about food. Why don't we start oh. with these recipes go throughout, don't they? Thanks, Alex. I um, how did I learn to cook? It was one of the questions, wasn't it? So I watched an awful lot of Ready Steady Cook when I was growing up. Coming from school, it was on in the kitchen. Mum would be down in the garden somewhere because she had had a day already so she'd need to escape and I didn't understand how much she needed her garden until I was much older and I need a walk now and again to top myself up um so she would be down be in the house hungry from school because I'd take a pack lunch because I didn't really like the school dinners so I'd had a fairly light, like light lunch I needed something I was ready for a meal and I used to raid the pantry and go in and see what I could find and do a steady, steady cook. And I just laid out the things that I could make. <laughs> and I basically watched an awful lot of Nigella and Nigel Slater. Um, and I just experimented. But it wasn't till I was um, maybe oh, went to France and tried. I stayed in a French school two weeks and I thought I was going to help teach English in the French school as part of my work experience. But what I really was doing was tasting all the different food at lunchtime. That was the highlight of the day because their school dinners were insanely good and I can still dream about them now. Um, crunchy French baguettes and dipping into the sauces and oh, the vegetables and the green beans and the tasty tomatoes and Oh, meat dripping in tasty juices and all sorts of things. I loved it. And that sort of sparked me off on eating it and enjoying TV and wanted to improve. And I just basically just taught myself. I am no great cook. I am a home cook who loves food. I love to eat. Uh, my family loves to eat. And I love to know where it's coming from. Um, because like, 
with baking especially you know what ingredients are going in it don't you let's be honest um you look at the packets now and they're so full of enums and all sorts of things and it's a real challenge as a mum of four to do this like I, I'm not perfect by any shape or form because probably with all sorts of things if we're out shopping together and I'm like let's try and make this and try and make that now our eldest is is a chef at a local restaurant and she's she gets frustrated with me if I say, let's cut the corners and get something. And she's like, no, we can make that, Mum. So she she's pushing me now. Oh, she sort of repeats itself a bit. Kate, um, are, you, are you a cook? Yeah, I I um I I love I love cooking. I mean, part of it, uh, again, when you live in a rural area, you know, we we couldn't get a takeaway. There is no, you know, there's no delivery service. Um, you know, so uh, and but also I, I think like Helen, um, you know, I come from uh, I come from a background where um, the, the as I say, there weren't the ready, you know, if you were born in 1968, as I up in the 70s in the countryside um, and brought up with a family that held its family values very strongly and those family values were built around eating together. I didn't go to a restaurant until I was probably 15, I think. I think that was I ate out. We just didn't eat out. Why? I mean, it was it was sort of seen as a it was a waste of money, really. Why Why would you do that? I mean, I think mum probably would have loved it if we ate out a bit more. And, and you know, the occasional, the occasional treat for her was that me and dad would go to the local town. It, was, it wasn't miles and miles away, but it was sort of probably six miles away and get fish and chips. And then, and, and again, that's another thing that I, there's a smell that takes me back because you did get it properly wrapped in newspaper in those days. No one cared about newsprint on their cod. And um, you'd have parcel, this lovely, warm, slightly soggy, you know, heavy, reassuringly heavy parcel on my knee. And we'd drive it home and it would never quite be hot enough, but it didn't matter. You know, it was this tremendous treat of fried food. We never had fried food, but mum did cook and it wasn't, it wasn't fancy it was you know it was as Helen said it was good home cooking we had a lot of you know we had shepherd's pies and we had crumbles and we had um yeah I mean it was it was stews lots of stews and but it was it was it was what was in season because that was what you could get you know things like you know people think now they have to feed their children avocados and sweet potatoes I think I mean I again I was about 20 I think when I had an avocado for the first time also thought it was disgusting took me a while to grow into those um but you know we ate we ate locally and seasonally because choice and we ate around the table you know again in the 70s growing up and in the countryside it was perfectly normal and acceptable for you to be kind of chucked outside and not come in until it's dark um and uh but but mum and I mum she and it was sort of it wasn't a kind of I didn't beg to be taught but it was also something that you just sort of did um and actually I suppose going back to 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 my first observation of your book Helen of of you know women it being very woman's role of homemaking is you know food is so intrinsically linked to that so it was almost this thing of mum would cook and it was sort of accepted that I would be alongside her kind mm -hmm. of mashing the potato for the shepherd's pie or um or the carrots or whatever whatever it was and so I I learned to cook and loved it my grandfather I remember for my 10th birthday gave me a wonderful cookbook and there may be people old enough out there to remember it I can't remember what it was called but it had this brilliant picture of a dog on the front of it you know a cartoon of a bandage around its nose because it had eaten food that was too hot or something, something like that anyway and it had all sorts of you know recipes like fudge in it um but for me very early on I realized the the potency of of food, of of what it can achieve, of of how it 
feel and it's always been it's always been my default you know um as someone who who never wanted children um and uh when friends had were having children my default wasn't to go out and buy them you know pretty pink baby grows because I knew everyone else would do that to things for the freezer <laughs> Because <laughs> oh, you know, I just thought food is food is the thing that kind of can just keep people going in whatever the circumstances. Yes, exactly. Can we? Uh, you, I don't want us to to run out of time before we talk about, and obviously it's so linked, um, intrinsically linked about farming. And we are, of course, a lot of people are asking that kind of question. And um, Rosie, for example, says, "Do you think farming is under great pressure now?" As the subsidy system is changing to the environment land management scheme, a lot of farmers saying they won't be able to manage. And yet we've also got to think about ability. Um, well, I'd like you both to, to talk about that. It's something you write a lot about, Helen, in, in your book. There's, yeah, there's huge challenges for farming in this country. And what are we doing when we don't value the food that from the land and good land stewardship? It, it drives me wild that we don't have adequate government support and recognition for what farmers are, were asked to do um, because we're being undercut by cheap imports coming in, that food is produced to substandard of what our welfare regulations are in this country and it's on our shelves. You can go to market, you can pick up a chicken sandwich and have a look on the back, packet, back of the packet. It's usually chicken from Thailand and that's in Morrison's and Sainsbury's it's it's absolutely absurd what's going on with food and farming in this country um the bps system for however it worked and didn't work it was a system and now we haven't really got an understanding a clear understanding of how we're supporting farmers properly elms there's stewardship schemes and farmers aren't the the, the paperwork is absurd and the regulation and, you know, we need healthy, nutritious food grown in the country to, to provide good nutrition for the population. And it drives me crazy to think about it. Um, how, how, what a mess we're in. Mess. We've got stuff on the shelves from all over the world coming in um, uh, when the blueberry bushes are being ripped up in Scotland because farmers can't make enough money with the blueberries. Orchards down the country are not going to produce anymore because they're not getting the right price. This dairy farms going out of business week. There's so much wrong, isn't there? And we need education and we need to share good messages about food and farming. This is not like basic access to healthy vegetables, meat, dairy. Isn't a, shouldn't be a luxury or a privilege. It should be a human right. So it gets me hey. really, really cross. But Helen, I think I'm only jumping in because I can tell you're cross, and I can also Helen and I were were talking about this uh, a little bit earlier, and um, and that that you know I said to Helen, and 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 I you know I I have a farm and work on a farm but my living doesn't come from the farm so I come from this from an entirely different perspective that Helen and James does um, but nonetheless you know one of the things that Helen and I were kind of bemoaning and kind of in, in comprehending about earlier was you know uh, I confess that I am possibly the worst businesswoman in the world. I have no idea how to how to run a business or, or work a business. I'm not I'm not wired that way or, or driven that way. But it's, if a business is to be successful, you need to produce or make something that everybody wants and needs, and everybody needs food. So why is it that the people who produce food can't make a living from that? And it seems to me, and I, re I, I don't know whether this is right, Helen, but it seems to me that one of the biggest issues is that the prices of food has become politicised. So mm -hmm. it's become a vote winner. How cheap can we make food? You know, everyone worries when the price of food goes up or, or governments do and politicians do 
price of food goes up because they think that it basically is going to be a vote loser for them. And food shouldn't be politicized. Food is the absolute bedrock of mm -hmm. our health and our existence. And, you know, if we go back to your mum or certainly our grandmother's the amount of a family's income that was spent on food was something like 25%, I think. And now it's less than 10%. And, 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 I, and, and, you know, it's not about cost of living. We know that there are a lot of people out there struggling to living. But we, my mum brought me up. And I suspect you were the same. You're brought up with a set of priorities. And those priorities are you pay for the things that really matter. And if you've got anything extra, then you can have, you know, a new jumper. Um, I wrote a tweet once. I don't do Twitter anymore because I think it's a bit toxic and, and I don't like it. But um, the proudest tweet I ever wrote was when there was uh, a story about the price of milk. Um, going down you know the fighting over a price of the pint of milk and that you do plenty of dairy farmers who've gone out of business who simply cannot make ends meet anymore because the price of milk had gone down to something like 12p a litre and um and and you know this whole thing of people not being willing to pay the proper price for milk but getting their vaginas which they would pay for and that's what i don't on what sort of priority is that, you know, we'll verjazzle, but we won't pay the proper price for a pint of milk. And I went today, sorry, this is all getting a little bit heavy, but I went today uh, for a routine breast screening. What a privilege that we have to us for free. And, yeah. um, but I'm also of an age where a lot of my friends are being diagnosed with cancer and it's terrifying. And I said to the amazing nurse on duty who did my scan. I said, why is that? Is it because of you? Is it because you're picking up things? Because there are these amazing screening services that, that allow diagnosis to happen more frequently. And she said, yes, that's part of it. But she said diet is unquestionably another part of why cancer is becoming more and more frequent. We're eating more processed foods and ultra processed foods a bad diet and that is being reflected in our health yeah we just don't know what these foods are doing to us we know enough now to know to avoid them and that they're bad for us but we don't know exactly what they're doing to our gut microbiomes do we and all our health Inf inflammation is one of the worst various cancers and such like and it, i mean gosh it's it's great to hear you had that routine mammogram and and screening and checks i'm just flabbergasted at the moment that there's so many different sectors of, of people striking there's nurses there's and there's and there's so many problems with the world that just i get so frustrated that the people that are doing the caring jobs and the the, the school teachers you know the stress that everybody's under no wonder we haven't got time to look up and say, oh God, from this, what, what could make this better? Because everybody's heads down and working because their mortgages are so high and their, their rents are so high, their electricity and gas is so high. And then it comes down to food, doesn't it? And then the very thing that would sustain us and build healthy relationships and all of that just goes because everybody's just so pressed for time yeah and I've sort of written against that with my book so it might look very bucolic and and pretty on the outside but I've got a message in there that's that's with heart and soul that I think we're getting too far away matter and I absolutely like I've thoroughly enjoyed this over the weekend Kate because it just reminded me of all different people's struggles to find home and feel safe and feel loved and um to just to just be kind one of the chapters you finished with kindness was the most important yes, thing that's absolutely right that 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 is a chapter about somebody who's been displaced from their home too and it's incredibly moving listen we are about to run out of time however that's gone quick i i, I know i would agree uh with you at
Ellen, and say that one of the things that's come across so strongly uh, from both of your books is there are actually many, many, many ways to make a home. And, not, and no home will be made without some teething issues and some little root diversions. Um, and finally then, on to Now, you've both been very, very, very good at telling other people, you know, at showing other people what you do in your properties and your farms and on your land to make them work. So how do I make my boggy field in the south of Ireland? Absolutely no expertise and skill. I've got a bit of time. What do I do? You're on the spot now. First, you need to give it lots of rest and you need to check I would say give it some rest and get a botanist and see what's there and then see what you want from the land. Do you want, do you want to graze animals on there? Do you want to, you know, because leaving it to go completely wild and abandoned is one thing, but then to increase lots of different plant species, I get something grazing on there. Um, it can do world of wonders uh, for your plant diversity. I certainly would be interested in you right. putting some sheep on there. It depends what size of acreage it is. There's options of planting some trees and putting some cages in there and, and then working with nature and, and seeing what you... You have to have a bit of a vision for what you want from it, really. Well, I want it to be good for everything. You know, I think, I think if, it's, if, it's, if it's a boggy piece of land, one of the one of the things and um, the other thing that we have to remember is that farmers are often criticised for something that absolutely isn't their fault, but is government policy, uh, which is imposed. It's felt like it's the sensible thing. So one thing that happened post Second World War, when, of course, there was an enormous pressure to uh, make land as productive as possible, was to drain boggy areas um, and to fill in ditches and to uh, and to make everything grazing land. We're paying for that now because uh, you know if you drain ditches and drain bogs there's nowhere for water to go and that's why we're seeing increased flooding as we get more dramatic weather events as our climate starts to change. So if you have got a boggy piece of ground that and you need to completely celebrate. <laughs> I can't believe I'm saying this to you, Alex. Celebrate your bog. Um, because I love it. Thank you. It, it is, you know, that is an increasingly rare um, and valuable habitat. You're absolutely right. Um, I would get a botanist in to see yes. what you've got there. Great. I would talk to an organisation like the Wildfowl and Wetlands Trust, who love advising people on what they can do to create uh, a wetland. Grazing as can be very valuable and, and look at native breeds don't go don't go you know for your your big your big expensive uh kind of continental breeds you want you know a nice a nice sort of highland cow or a belted galloway or a you know a good native southern irish sheep and and you don't want to graze it too hard you just graze you graze in bits but someone will advise you on that and they don't have to be your animals because you know that's a whole heap of other <laughs> stress that you would give yourself but you know you will find lovely livestock uh people i'm sure in your area who will have their animals on your land uh for the time that you need it there but all i would say is if you've got a bog Love it, celebrate it, and make it count. Wow. Thank you. You've made me feel so much better about, <laughs> about, the, about my wellies. Thank you. You've been so brilliant. You've just been so brilliant. And thank you all for all your questions. I know Jack is going to come back now and, and say, uh, say goodbye to us all. At least I think he is. Yes, here he is. Um, but you've just been wonderful. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you Alex. Much, Kate and Helen. That was a wonderful conversation, and and so we went quite. We went to a lot of spaces, didn't we? Jeff? Yes. We yeah, it covered a lot of ground. Exactly. Covered a lot of ground. But you know, we ended have... with my personal question time. But what can ended we... with a celebration of bogs, which it felt apt, you know. Um, <laughs>
you, yeah, thank you so much. You could have listened to it for, for many more hours. And, and thank you, Alex, for sharing so brilliantly. And thank you all for watching at home as well. Um, remember that you can find details about how to order Kate and Helen's books in the chat. They're being posted right now from Newham Bookshop, our wonderful independent bookselling partner. Your eyes peeled for future Fibre 15 events. Next Monday, the 9th of October, we have Marcus de Sautoy and Alex Bellos discussing the maths behind games. Should be a really fun one, so do tune in for that. Thank you so much, Kate, Helen and Alex for this evening, and thank you all for watching. Good night. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Thank you.